Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. I think many of us know this quote, but I'm going to read it to you. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet, right? Now, our good friend Bill Shakespeare wrote this uh, in Romeo and Juliet. And some context for this quote. uh, Angry that it's just their family name that keeps them apart, right? Juliet throws out this line as she laments the fact that she cannot be with Romeo because their families hate each other. They don't like each other, right? And so she's mad that just because of the last name that he has is the only reason that they can't date. They can't be together, right? And while Juliet does provide a bit of truth that none of us are defined by our families or our names, I can't fully get on board that names don't mean anything, right? Now, if you're anything like me, and I know I am, uh, I, when I was growing, <laughs> Carl always likes that one. Uh, growing up, you, you like, I considered a lot like what I might name my kids, right? I don't know if anyone else did this where they would just sit, even as kids, and be like, hmm, what would I name my kids, right? And if you're anything like me, there would be names that were eliminated as you met people by certain names, right? No offense, Jason. Um, I'm just joking. Thank you. Um, I I can think of specific names I would never use on any kids because of the ways in which that name reminds me of someone else, right? Just gets a little bit weird, right? And while names don't mean as much to us as they did in biblical times, they still pick up subjective value through our lives as we meet people by those names, right? I throw out a particular name, and it's probably going to bring to mind someone for you, right? In a lot of different situations. Now, we'll get back to that. If you missed us last week, or if you're new, we started a new series. You should always start a new series on a holiday weekend, I found out. Um, We started a new series on the book of Exodus that we're calling Encounters in Exodus, where we are exploring the ways in which encounters with God affect Moses, affect God's people, and affect the entire story of redemption um, in the Bible, right? And as Jason read, our first face-to-face encounter, or sort of face, more like a bush-to-face, but our first encounter occurs in Exodus 3 with Moses in the burning bush, right? Last week, we began the exploration by charting the ways in which Moses and Pharaoh were characterized as two of our main characters in the first two chapters. So this morning, after setting the bit of the stage, uh, I do want to continue to chart out the ways in which we're shown the characters of our story by charting out Moses and God and what it says about them in Exodus 3. Uh, Just a few reminders before we start that, though, about where we are in the story. See, Moses was an Israelite baby boy, right? He was born, we just read this, but he was born when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, right? And at this time, right when Moses was born, uh, the Pharaoh had put out an edict because of his fear of the Israelites that all the baby boys would be killed in the Nile. So Moses' mother puts him in a basket. Uh, She puts him in the river. And then who finds him but Pharaoh's daughter, And so Moses is raised in the household of Pharaoh, right? And yet, Moses somehow finds out that he's an Israelite. And so he takes that, or he has that information as he goes out one day, and he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite uh, who is enslaved, and he kills the Egyptian, right? Kills the Egyptian, buries him, 
thinks he's taking care of it. And then, of course, Pharaoh finds out. Moses finds out that Pharaoh found out. And so then Moses runs to Midian, where we are this morning in our story, right? Midian is the midst of the wilderness, right? Right next to the mountain of Horeb or the mountain of God. Now, our characterization and our use of what we called hyperlinks last week is just ways in which the Bible refers to old aspects of, or other aspects, other passages in the Bible, right? Uh, it showed us that Moses was justice-oriented but misguided, right? While the Pharaoh was set up to be just like the snake in the story of Adam and Eve. He is the anti-God, right? And that's where we arrive to our verses in Exodus 2 and 3 this morning. Uh, God hears the Israelites' groans and cries, and God appears to Moses in the burning bush. So with that, we're going to go ahead and take a deeper look, first at Moses' characterization in the story, and then at God's characterization in the story. Let's start with a brief look at Moses. Now, Moses is in the wilderness, tending to the sheep of his father-in-law, right? When he sees the burning bush and is curious about what's going on. I'm going to go ahead and reread uh, the verses in chapter 3, verse 4. It says, When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then God said, I am the God of all of these people. And when God said that, Moses hid his face, right? For he was afraid to look at God. Now, immediately we get a glimpse at the fact that Moses is not necessarily a one-dimensional character in our story, right? He is a little bit complicated. When a literal bush calls his name, Moses is obedient to the bush, right? Here I am. And yet, as God reveals that it is him who is in the bush, Moses becomes afraid. And so we have Moses who is afraid and yet somewhat obedient in some sort of way, right? Now, I don't think it's fully fair to characterize Moses as someone who is fully afraid from this, right? Like hiding your face from the God of your fathers feels like a pretty typical reaction, especially when there's just a random voice coming from a burning bush, right? But I want you to hold on to this first reaction, and I wanted to highlight this first reaction we see from Moses' character, right? Because despite who Moses grows into become, some of you know the end of the story, his first reaction to God is to hide his face from him, right? That's, that's distinct. Okay, next part of the story. Um, God lets Moses know that God has heard the people cry out about their slavery. And I just want to give you another little quick tidbit here, a hyperlink. It's not fully related to what we're going into this morning, but we have... Um, like I said, another hyperlink in this passage. So the phrase that is used for uh, the people cried out and God heard them, their cries raised up to God, is the same language that is used in Genesis when it talks about Abel's blood raising up and crying out is what it says about the blood and ra uh, raising up and God hears that, right? And so last week we talked about how Moses was a sort of Cain character uh, in that he wanted to be his brother's keeper. So he tried to redeem the Cain character, right? He wanted to be his brother's keeper, but he was just like Cain in that his uh, situation ended up in murder as well, right? And so we have another hyperlink here that's highlighting, like, this is still a little bit of a Cain and Abel story. That Moses still is supposed to be his brother's keeper, but he couldn't do it on his own. And, and God is showing that he is not done with the redemption of that character, right? So I just want to throw that out. Okay, so back to God is letting Moses know that he hears the cry of the Israelites and that he, God, is going to liberate them from slavery and oppression, and that he's going to use Moses to do it. 
Now, Moses has a lot of responses to God when God shares this. In fact, our, our responses are actually bleeding over into next week when Tiana preaches for us. But I just want to look at the two first ones. Tiana's like, that's news to me. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. She knows. Um, okay, let's look at the first two responses. Moses' first response to God saying he was going to use Moses, right? Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I, right? Now, I think to some, this can read as humility, right? Especially for those of, some of you who grew up in the church. I, I don't know if you hear, like, the Casting Crown song. It's all about, who am I? You know, um, okay, there's six of you that know that song. Cool. Um, yeah, you don't want me to sing, Jason? All right. Um, it, but it can sort of read as humility, right? I'm not that important. I'm not spectacular. Why would you choose me to do it, Right? But let's consider God's words when he calls Moses here. Moses here. He says, I have come down to rescue the, God. I, God, have come down to rescue the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptian and bring them to a good and spacious land. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, right? God has made it clear who's doing the work. He is, Right? God is doing the work in this scenario, and Moses is just along for the ride. So not only do I think Moses is not being humble in this situation, I actually think his response is the opposite. It shows a self-focus that panics about how this situation is going to impact him, right? I sort of think of it as like if Jamie were to ask me to drive Alex to drum practices, um, and I, my response might have been like, oh, I know you want to spend time with Alex, Right? I'm going to let you do it. Now, I would never do this because I like my son, right? But if I were to, what am I doing? (laughs) Emil said kind of. Um, I'm a spin doctor, right? I'm avoiding something I don't want to do and also trying to make myself look good in the process, right? Now, to give Moses credit, he did have a move earlier in our story that was a little bit of an attempt at some liberation, right? In killing the Egyptian, he wanted to relieve the Israelite of being beaten in the situation. So I get his fear, right? Because when he did that, the Pharaoh was trying to kill him. And so there's this fear of like, well, I tried something. It didn't work. You're just going to send me back into another situation, right? And I think, and I want us to remember, like, this is Moses' first encounter with God, right? He's obviously heard of God, right? God, in coming to Moses, calls himself the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and Moses, being a Hebrew, being Jewish, he would have known these references, right? But Moses had yet to see God's full power on display. In fact, I kind of wonder if Moses would sit there and just be like, man, God, if you really cared, wouldn't you have already moved before this, right? Moses' lack of faith is understandable, but just because it's understandable doesn't make it right, right? Moses is showing cowardice and a lack of faith fueled by a lack of understanding of who God is. But we're going to get to that. Now, God responds to Moses' concern about not being the one that is able to do it by again confirming that he is the one that's going to do all the work, right? What's God's response? I will be with you, right? I will be with you. Now, three weeks ago, I preached on this, and I used this passage in order to sort of drive home the idea that God's presence is really important for our purpose, right? So I'm not going to spend much time on that again, but I just wanted to re-highlight this. Like, isn't this wild? God's answer to our fear is his presence. 
that he is with us, right? I get, that is so exciting to me. And, and I guess just me, but that's fine. Um, sure. Now, this response, God's promising his presence, informs Moses' second response this morning. What is Moses' second response? Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask, what is his name? What shall I tell them? Now, this is a really weird question. Uh, it's like God is like, just said, I'm the God of your fathers. And he's like, yeah, but what's your name? We'll get to that, I promise. But let's just look at sort of like what Moses is really asking here. See, I think this might be a bit of another excuse, but I think what Moses is really trying to communicate is that he is unsure of what God's presence would do for him, right? Moses is saying, I get that you are the God of my fathers and that you'll be with me when I go, but who are you? What does your presence mean to me, right? In other words, why should I trust you to protect me when I go? Moses is communicating that he does not know God, right? He knows of God, but he does not know him. And as a result, he has a hard time trusting him. I want you to consider this. Weird scenario, but for some reason we're in it. Consider you have to go into a room blindfolded that has deadly traps, right? Who would you pick to lead you? Would you pick pick someone you trust or a stranger? Answer is obviously someone you trust, right? So if Moses believes that he would be re-entering a situation in which he could be killed, and he can, right? He has already, they already attempted to kill him. Then it makes sense that he wants to trust the one who's saying he's going to lead him. Now, he's using a scenario of being like, well, say they want to know who you are, right? But really he means like, God, I need to know who you are, right? I need to know what your character is like. And so with that, let's dive into what this passage says about God's character. How is God, the main character of our story, characterized here in, in uh, Exodus 3. Now, there are lots of ways in, in which God is characterized in the story, and I really encourage you to restudy the passage for yourself, but in order to focus our time, I just want to focus on one way in which he's characterized, okay? And in order to do that, I actually am going to look at every way or every time that God is mentioned up until this point in the burning bush, just in Exodus, Okay? This is gonna, might be, feel a little tedious. I'm just going to read a bunch of verses, but you'll see why in a minute. Okay, start. Exodus 1.17. The midwives, however, feared Elohim and did not know what to do with, did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Exodus 1.20. So Elohim was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared Elohim, he gave them families of their own. Exodus 2.23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to Elohim. Elohim heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So Elohim looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Exodus 3.3. Now Moses was, Moses was tending to the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of, you guessed it, Elohim, right? You're getting the point, but we're going to keep going. Okay, Exodus 3, 4. When Jehovah saw that he had gone over to look, Elohim called to him from the bushes, Moses, Moses. Exodus 3, 6. Then he said, I am the Elohim of your father, the Elohim of Abram, the Elohim of Isaac, the Elohim of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at, you guessed it, Elohim, right? 
Why am I mentioning, or why am I highlighting that every mention of God up to this point is the Hebrew word Elohim? You see, Elohim is a pretty general Hebrew word. It's it's actually the plural form of God, which I won't get into, but that's kind of a fun point to uh, Trinitarian stuff. But not, it's not like the word for, like, God, God, right? It's more so a title, like, deity, okay? So it's, it's a lot like if, uh, it, it's like a general character, or general category for, like, a celestial being, right? Something different than human. So it's a lot like if I walked up to you and was like, hey, human, right? Like, just calling you a human. Or sometimes at our house, because he's a different uh, type of being, we just refer to the dog as the dog, right? So it's not calling him copper, it's just calling him the dog, right? Uh, I lost my part. Okay, so it, it technically describes God, a, God categorically, but it lacks all other descripting factors, right? And yet, up until the burning bush, this is the only word that is used for God in Exodus. Until, of course, we get to God's response to Moses' question of who he is. So let's go back to the text. Exodus 3, 13. Moses said, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the Elohim of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? Then what should I tell him? Right? Now, Moses' question makes a lot more sense now, doesn't it? It's like, you are not, that is not your name. That is the category of who you are. It's like, you are human. What is your name? Right? Is what he is saying in this situation. Let's look at God's response. God said to Moses, Yahweh, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. Yahweh has sent me to you, right? Our English translation, God said, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, quick note, the conjugation of the verb here is not yet actually Yahweh. <laughs> I just want to be honest with you. Yahweh means he is who he is. Um, but just to avoid a really nerdy and really poorly described uh, Hebrew verb lesson, we're just going to stick with the more common translation of Yahweh here, just to keep it consistent, right? Okay, so Yahweh. Now, I hope you all are with me right now because this is really, really exciting stuff. I sort of think of this moment as like this, the part of the love story where the two main characters meet. You know, they like run into each other. It's weird to think... It's not romantic love, obviously, in, in our situation. But they, like, run into each other, drop their papers, are somehow not mad, and they're like, oh, hey, I'm Jimmy. You know? That situation. See, God, Yahweh, has revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush and revealed his name. Right? I am who I am. Outside of what the name means, what does this moment communicate about God? I think it communicates that he's a personal God. Right? One who desires relational closeness with his people. One who hears the cry of his people, says that he's, come, he's coming down to rescue them, and then re- reveals himself in the process of that rescuing, of that liberation, right? I am so thankful we have a personal God. We do not have an, just an Elohim, right? We do not have a deity who has created and stepped away because he was sick of us or didn't want to do any work, right? We don't have a God who sits in heaven waiting for the other side of eternity and asking us to do the same, right? We don't have that God. We have one who is directly involved in our personal lives, one who saw that we needed liberation, right? There's liberation from power structures of the world. There's liberation from sin. He's the one who saw we needed redemption from our own choices and ways of being, and the one who came down to rescue in the form of man 
and died a death, right? Even death on a cross. See, Jesus in many ways is a little bit of our burning bush, right? He's our encounter with God, the one we point to when we can't remember if God cares or not, the one that showed God hears us and sees us, right? Okay, God is a personal God who has revealed his name to us. But what does the name mean? So I want to spend the rest of our morning like exploring what does I am who I am reveal about our God. The name Yahweh has led to thousands and thousands of years of speculation It's about what this says specifically about God, right? So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to share uh, just a few ways of some, like, some speculation for me. It is other scripture informed, so don't get me wrong, but the scripture or the passage does not directly say that these things are true as a result of this name. So I'll do a little bit of speculation, and then we'll go into what the text directly says. Uh, okay, so let's go ahead and jump into the speculation. I think the first is that I am who I am points to God as the originator, the first one, the one without a beginning, the source of life, right? His existence is a self-existence, meaning nothing caused him. Nothing caused his existence. He has always existed, and he always will, right? Why is this important for us? It's because if he is the one without a beginning, he also doesn't have an end, right? If God had an end, he would not be a God that would be able to be a covenant God because he would not be able to keep his promises, right? He would not be a God that could promise eternal life because he himself would not be eternal, right? What else does it point to? I am who I am also points to God's self-sufficiency. Just like he was not created by anything, he also does not rely on anything or anyone for meaning or sustenance, right? We are not self-sustaining beings, right? We rely on each other, food, water, amidst other things for our continuation. Yet God does not need, or does not have reliance. He does not need anything. Why is this important? Because if God had reliance, our creation would come with a lot more stipulations, right? I want you to consider the ways in which, like, let's just take one example, the, the uh, Greek mythology and the ways in which they describe their gods, right? See, the gods created the humans in order to have a type of slave so that they could rest, right? It was like, humans, you're going to do work, and I'm going to step back, and I'm going to be able to rest. I'm creating you in order to fully just serve me, right? But what sort of relationship does this cause between God and the humans? God or gods, in this case, is a bitter oppressor, right? There is no personal God in this scenario. Yet our God, God's creation of us did not happen because he needed us to serve him or because he needed us to affirm that he was worth worshiping, right? His creation of us is a direct overflow of the whole and loving workings of the Trinity, of the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, right? That relationship that is overflowing and in creating us is inviting us into that overflowing love, right? That's why it's important that he is self-sustaining, because it's overflowing, not stipulating, right? And my last speculation here is one that I think is related to what the passage does say, that God being I am who I am means that he is unchanging, right? He is who he is. Now, stick with me here. This bit of God's character relies on other aspects of his character in order for this to be good news. Uh, and before I explain this, I do want to shout out Bryn Mark here, our Wednesday morning Bible study. We actually looked over this passage, and they helped me sort of work out what I was thinking here. And so I don't, I don't know if anyone 
says Tiana is here from Urban Marker study, but yeah, uh, Tiana and I go every Wednesday, and they help me out a lot. So with that, let me, let me say that again. This bit of God's character relies on other spa- aspects of his character being good in order for this to be good news. Let me give you an example. The funniest disagreement that Jamie and I have ever had has been about folding laundry. It was like literally like the first month of our marriage, um, and it might have been the first week. What do you think? First week? And it was like the first time we were ever folding laundry together. So we're sitting there folding, and Jamie realizes that I'm literally only folding my clothes and not hers, right? Now, my thinking, I just want to clarify what what my thinking was, okay? Because in retrospect, yes, I was dumb. But so I'm sitting there, and it's like Jamie and I folded clothes very differently. Um, We folding clothes, it does not matter, but for whatever reason in this moment, it mattered to me. I was like, she folds it differently. I don't like that. I like the way I fold it. So how about I just fold all mine, she just folds all hers, and then they're folded the way we like it, right? But Jamie, and she was right, was like, that is literally the dumbest thing I have ever heard, right? We did not become one flesh to still only fold our own laundry, right? So I started to help folding everyone's clothes, or I started helping to fold everyone's clothes, right? But what if, just stick with me, what if Jamie asked me to participate in folding all the pieces of clothing, and I was like, Jamie, can't do that. I am who I am, right? What does that communicate? It would be so detrimental to our relationship early on, would it not? It communicates that I hear you saying I need to change. However, I am not going to change, Right? And so all of a sudden, not being able to change is bad news because I have a flaw. You you with me? And I will say, like, side note, I think Jamie might regret this one because she has probably realized at this point, like, I wear way more clothing than her. I am like, I don't know if you guys ever watched MTV Cribs, the Mariah Carey episode. She changed clothing every room. Like, I am probably on that pace, I think. So, Jamie, appreciate you. Um, Anyways... When God says, I am who I am, it therefore relies on God being good, right? Or else this is not good news, right? So let me jump into the text to actually see what it's saying about God in order to see that this is good news for us, right? Verses 7 through 10 again. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering, So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and then bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of all of the ites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, out, the Israelites, out of Egypt. This is the context, Moses that you go to reveal my name, that I am who I am, right? You see, the context of Yahweh is that God is a God of liberation, a God who hears the cries of his people, who sees their oppression, and a God who liberates them from that oppression. So often, I identify myself with Moses, not like the sea parting or like cool stuff Moses, but the like afraid of a bush Moses, right? Um, The Moses who might be like, God, do you care about the injustices of the world? God, I need some confirmation that you care, right? I've told you all this before, but some of my hardest moments as a believer are when I see or hear about the oppression in our current cultural context 
and feel as if God is silent. To be clear, God is not silent, right? God is moving. But sometimes I feel like he is because I want him to solve it in my ways. And yet God is who he is. You see, the God of Exodus is the same God we have today. And so the stories revealed to us in Exodus are a reminder to me that God hears the cries of his people and God moves to help those people. You see, if God is truly Yahweh, if he is who he is, nothing has changed about his character from that moment in the burning bush, right? The name I am who I am gives me hope because it reminds me God, not, God is not just the God of white evangelicalism that says everything will be solved on the other side of eternity. See, every tear will be wiped away, right? Every, and death will be no more. But God also cares about the tangible suffering, oppression, and injustice on this side of eternity. Just because this is not our home does not w- mean that we stand idly by as death and unwholeness run rampant, right? God, th- God cared then, and he cares now. God is who he is, right? Okay, the final way the text reveals what God means when he says, I am who he am, and I, I am who I am, and the way I want to end my sermon this morning takes a little bit of fast-forwarding. You see, Jesus' ministry had some very interesting progressions. Uh, he started as a pretty beloved teacher who turned water into wine, uh, it was pretty popular, and who was able to hear people, heal people perform miracles. And yet, the more platform he had, the more he pushed the envelope to re- reveal who he truly was, right? And that made some people mad. We get to John chapter 8. Uh, he's already made some people pretty mad. Jesus had just performed some miracles and then make some pretty wild claims about himself. See, Jesus is continuing to talk to a group of people, and he tells them this. He says, if you follow what I do, you will be set free. And some of the people that were listening to him who did not follow him pushed back. And they said, if we're, we're descendants of Abraham, right? We've never been enslaved, so we don't need to be set free, which is actually like historically wrong, but we don't need to get into that. Jesus tells them, though, if they had sinned, then they were slaves to the sin and they needed to be set free from it. And then he implies that he himself had never sinned, thus being the reason why he was able to set people free from their sin. Now let's look at the rest of John 8, starting in verse 54. Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Look, they're calling him on his stuff, right? How could Jesus have seen Abraham? Abraham was very dead, right? Jesus' response, Very truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple ground. Before Abraham was born, I am. You see what Jesus is claiming? and why the people were mad and wanted to stone him, right? Which was the punishment of blasphemy. Jesus is saying, I am who I am. I am God in the flesh. You see, who Jesus was and what he did before, on, and after the cross points directly to what God means when he says, I am who I am. We can know what God is like because of what Jesus was like, 
right? Jesus is the great I am. And in pursuing him, we are pursuing understanding the very nature of God. You see, just like God first pursued Moses in the burning bush, he has pursued us first by making a way for him to be known. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we have been invited into encountering the God of the universe, and we have been invited into relationship with him. He is who he is, right? And that is amazing news for us. Because if he first pursued us, let us, with all of our being, pursue him. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.